You're listening to Interzone Pod. My name is Gareth Jelly. I'm the editor of Interzone. You can find out more about Interzone at interzone.press and read stories and reviews and interviews for free at interzone.digital. Joining me on the show today, author Gary Gibson. Hello. Hello, Gary Gibson. Hello. Nice to see you, Gareth. Yeah, nice to talk to you. Thank you very much for coming back on. Um, well, not coming back on. Th- thank you for coming on to the show. Uh, we we've spoken before uh, when I was doing inter multiversal interviews, but yeah, this is your first time in this form of Interzone, right? It is indeed. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, it's it's been interesting seeing Interzone uh expand digitally and uh also doing the uh whole audio podcast thing as well it's been fascinating you, you you're you're really into you know sort of branching out into different things you've got a patreon a newsletter i'm sure you've had podcast plans yourself um yeah you know what 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 is your kind of feeling about you know the current state of uh, you know, digital publishing? I, to be honest, I don't really have any clear opinion on it. Um, I just basically follow the advice of other people who've gone there before me. And uh, I keep, I, I spend a lot of time researching and seeing what others do. And I sometimes have to think quite carefully about expanding to different things. And I just generally try and figure out the best I can what's the right thing to do and what's the wrong thing to do. Because I'm very, I don't want to walk into a situation where I don't know what's going on. Right. So I explored Patreon very carefully before I went into that. Uh, same with um, audiobooks, doing them myself sometimes. And just, just trying to figure out, you know, where things could go wrong as much as what could go right. I think um, the next step for me might be to consider for a certain project something like Kickstarter, but that seems like quite a complicated area in itself so i need to really think about it carefully before i did that yeah pretty involved pretty time consuming i I was talking to one writer who who told me that uh they were in a they were in a involved or or knew someone involved in a project who was planning their kickstarters to i think even three years in advance and uh Yeah, just a massive amount. Yeah, I mean, that's 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 great and <laughs> if if that works. But yeah, it, it, it does seem to be very, very sort of, it requires a certain set of skills, right? Well, I think that there's a certain kind of um, personality or frame of mind it appeals to. Um, I know people who are talented writers and novelists, and some of them maybe don't currently have deals. And some of them might, you know, do okay if they were to set up their own imprint or explore Kickstarter or Patreon or, or other things like that, but they don't have the mindset for it. It's not something that interests them. It's not something that holds, you know, they have no desire to do that. So, you know, like, um, I think it, it helps to have a particular kind of mind. I've been doing magazines and small press publications and various things since at least the early 90s. So the idea of just going out there and doing things for myself is not new. I I quite enjoy that side of things, actually. But I know a lot of other people maybe don't so much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So as you say, you've been you've been in in the game for a while. I mean, I think your it wasn't your first 
ever sail, but one of your first sails was to Interzone, and that was about 30 years ago, um, touched by an angel. Oh my God, 30 years ago? Holy shit, was it that long ago? Sorry, I just felt I just felt the I just felt the arrows of time I felt the arrows of time thudding into my chest one after the other. Oh what? Oh good lord. It was when Interzone was still in double digits, if you can um yeah, that's Ah, that was that was a second story. Yeah, the second story I ever sold was to Interzone. The first one was to a horror magazine. Not you know what you normally associate me with, but yeah. Uh, it took a while to get that story sold. Yeah. Well, it took a long time to write. It actually started out as an outline for a novel, and I couldn't figure out how to do it. I mean, I thought, maybe if I just write it like it's kind of like fiction, maybe it'll read better and it'll make more sense to me. So I did that. I mean, I thought, I wonder if I can sell this as it is. And so <laughs> I did. <laughs> so that's what I mean by it taking a long time in a weird kind of way. But um, it helped me figure out structure that that story you know and that was touched by an angel and which which was connected to a later novel right you it was um it was angel stations i think which which at least on on the internet science fiction database that is sort of i think in the same universe or or connected it is um basically the touched by an angel story i gotta be honest i really hate that title now it's terrible awful but whatever you know you're you're it was my early days so whatever you know you you write good stuff you write bad stuff but um yeah it was supposed to be an outline for a novel which i did write and it didn't ever sell but it got me an agent Mm -hmm. and uh the first one of the publishers it went to didn't like it but they said oh well but we'll take a look at your next one which was a good sign and the next one was in the same universe, and that was Angel Stations. And that became my first um, published novel. Right, right. Um, so, so sort of since then, you've, you've been published by, by small presses like Newcon. Yeah. You've been published by bigger sort of, you know, traditional, inverted commas, traditional publishers. And then you've also uh, kind of really gone in this direction where you're putting your own books out, getting your own cover art getting your own audiobooks, you've become very much uh, a sort of publishing, a, a sort of independent publishing machine. Um, wh- what what led you to, to that switch? Uh, you know, I, I, you've kind of told me a little bit about it, but I think listeners might be interested to hear, yeah, where, when or how you decided to go from doing it that way to doing it this way. I think I've thought about this in the past, how I would describe it to people. And the best way I can put it at first, the first answer I would have is that I went for my own route because I couldn't afford to try and get traditionally published. And what I mean by that is that it takes a long time, even when you've been published in the past to sell a book, you've got no idea what's going on if someone's actually read a book or if it's just sitting in an electronic pile somewhere being ignored for six months. Um, There are all kinds of other factors that come into the acquisition of a book that have nothing to do with the quality of of the story um, whatsoever. And it really, and also even when you get published in the end, payments are split up across sometimes years so what looks good on paper at first turns into really quite small checks one year and then the next year. And uh, it, at that point, it's not a career, it's a hobby. 
which is fine for a lot of people, but I was a bit more ambitious than that. And um, it really chafed me that I, after having had 10 books out that were, you know, moderately successful, I think, um, that the next thing I wrote that was completely new, Echogenesis, was, you know, like um, it, I got no interest whatsoever from any publishers in the UK. Uh, my stuff has gone out in the past to US publishers, but they've never shown an interest at all. So I thought, okay, screw it, I'll do it myself. And to be honest with you, I'm glad I did because in certain respects, many respects, if not most, uh, it's been pretty much the most successful book of my entire career. It really has. And I thought, oh shit, why do I need to rely on the publisher? I'm not against traditional publishing. I'm not saying I will never get traditionally published again. Not that at all. It just has to be a deal where I think I can do better through that deal than I could doing it on my own. Right. And and you kind of, you mentioned a little bit earlier about writers who don't have deals who might be looking at going into something like this. What advice would you give would you give people who are considering it? Well, to think very carefully about it, because I don't necessarily think it's right for everyone because I see people doing it wrong. Um, and by wrong, I mean really bad cover art that their cousin did or their kid. Um, th that really doesn't help. And uh, the editing isn't great or the formatting isn't great. And that actually gives you an insight as to how much value, uh, to be honest, traditional publishers can actually add, or at least editors can add and copy editors and designers. So you, you be, 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 they're able to write a solid novel maybe, um, but it's a whole different ballgame when you come to presenting something people might actually necessarily you know, want to buy. Um, so yeah, I have to think really carefully about it. And if someone feels it isn't for them, then maybe it actually isn't. Um, so I've tried as much as possible to put out books that look as much as possible like everything else that's out there and that's coming out also from major publishers. It's still been a learning curve for me in many ways. I've written books I was really happy with, which I thought would do well, but didn't do so well. So I had to figure out why that was. And for instance, I learned that Essentially, they were too different from what I'd done before. Um, that can be wobbly territory because if they go too far outside of, of what people generally look for from you, um, that they're going to think, well, maybe that's not the kind of thing for me, and it gets ignored. And because you're associated with a certain kind of writing, maybe other people who might like it might then not be aware of that book. So I'm kind of trying to stick more closely now to what I know people will respond to, which is very much within the hard SF remit I've been doing most of my career. But yeah, getting back to what you're asking me originally, which is about what I would say to people is, research it really carefully and don't do it unless you're sure you're gonna research it really carefully and be smart about it. Good cover art, maybe hire an editor if you can afford it. Uh, I can think of other writers I've seen and who I've paid attention to. Uh, who've done the solo route and I think done quite well out of it. There's one writer, Adam Neville, and uh, he's a horror writer. And he was also previously with Pan Macmillan, but uh, he made the decision, I understand, um, I get his newsletter, to basically do his own thing because um, 
it was a way to keep writing the kind of stories he wants to write. And he spends clearly a lot of effort on the packaging, on focusing on writing the kind of stories he knows his readers want, and on producing material regularly and promoting it as best he can and producing very nice deluxe hardback editions. And he does a great job of it. Um, another example might be Linda Nagata, uh, the uh, American SF writer who writes very much hard SF. Again, great cover art, um, all very polished, all very well produced. It's that real attention to detail you need. And especially when you're doing it on your own, it does take as much effort easily as, as does the actual writing. But, you know, if you're the kind of person who actually enjoys that kind of attention to detail, and I think I probably am that kind of person, then you're okay because you'll figure out the right way to do things. So, yeah, that would be my advice. Just basically go in cautiously, but be aware you have a lot to learn and uh, be smart about what you do. And um, it really depends. Um, I've seen other writers who've gone self-publishing where I thought they might actually benefit from some kind of a publishing deal. There was one writer in particular who'd written what I thought were some very good books, and uh, but he was getting zero attention from major publishers. And I thought it might be worth their while maybe going to one of the small presses because even though they wouldn't pay very much, uh, small presses are generally very dedicated to the books they do acquire, and I believe that they would acquire his books if he went to them. And that he, there's a perception thing where if you do it on your own, it still has a slight stigma to it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're published even by the tiniest small press, like one guy in his garden sheds, <laughs> then um, you're running a publisher, which is what some of them actually are, yeah. it's still nonetheless gives it an air of powerful legitimacy that make, that makes a difference for some people. And uh, it can be worth it for some writers to just go through the small prices. The, the big publishers, when I said earlier that books aren't necessarily acquired depending on how good they are, what I mean specifically is, as far as I understand it, in the marketing departments have much more power these days. Say they receive a particular sp- kind of space opera, right? And uh, they think, well, can we sell this? And maybe it's a space opera, but I don't know, a race of alien prawns or something. I don't know. And so they look and say, well, there was another publisher who had a book about six months ago about a race of alien prawns. It didn't perform so well. So clearly people don't want books about alien prawns. So we won't acquire this book either. So it might have been the best book in the universe about alien prawns or the best book about whatever. <laughs> because it because another book like it didn't necessarily perform well, they might not acquire it. Uh, I'm in two minds about whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, I think one of the benefits of self-publishing and independent publishing is that you get to figure out on your own what people will respond to, as in what do people actually want to read, you know? Yeah. Um, if you're a writer sending stuff into a publisher, you never find out because they will tell you just about nothing, you know? It can mm-hmm. be a bit like a mysterious place where you can never enter a field of 
information that never comes out, like a black hole, you know, of, of information. You ask questions and you get no responses. Um, so you, you have to try and intuit how publishing works from the outside. <laughs> it says, uh, you know, the, the big publishers, anyway, they don't really want you to know, I don't think. So um, instead of having to do that, if you do some self-publishing, you can figure out what people do respond to. And that can actually be really valuable because there's nobody in the way, there's nobody saying, well, it's this or it's that. You can see for yourself what's selling, what isn't. Um, yeah, so yeah, you have to be very business-minded about it, I think, as well. Um, I know a lot of people think writing and it's art and so forth, and it is, and it absolutely is. And I worry sometimes I come across as too money-focused, but my real drive is to basically write books that sell so that I can therefore write more books mm -hmm. to keep producing stories as much as I can um, that people want to read. So my my focus in that respect and the business side of it is in order to enable me to write more stories I want to tell. Yeah. Go, go, going back in time again a little bit, when you, you were talking about you know, looking to writers and how they're doing it and, you know, and sort of, you know, and studying when you were starting out, I, I know you kind of interviewed a few people. Um, you, you were kind of involved in, so you, you were talking to people and reading things as well. I'm sure. Who were you looking to in terms of, you know, I, I want to, you know, that that's who I want to be, or that's who I admire in, in terms of sort of, you know, science fiction or, or just writing generally. I pretty much wanted to be Greg Bear or Gregory Benford. Those were my, my gods of science fiction, really, at one point. And um, books like Aeon mm -hmm. and uh, some of Greg Benford's novels just were just really totally my kind of thing. Um, they had this combination of really solid, interesting characterization, really out there ideas, and this hard SF context for the novels. And uh, I, I, thinking about it in retrospect, I, you know, I did read quite a few British SF writers, but I think I was probably more influenced by some of these American hard SF writers than anyone else. So yeah, they were pretty much kind of who I wanted to be. That's not ignoring the British SF writers. I, I, I really like D.D. Ballard stuff, for instance, but that doesn't really kind of come through in the stuff I write. Whereas maybe the, 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 the Bear and the Benford and those guys, maybe it comes, I don't know, I can't say, I can't be objective enough. But I wonder sometimes whether or not that influence comes through through there. Uh, I get compared actually more often to um, stuff. Well, maybe because it's just a marketing thing because we're in roughly the same, you know, kind of books. I get compared to writers like Peter Hamilton and Neil Asher, but I, I wasn't really aware of them. You know, to be honest, when I was writing my first couple of novels, it's only later I was more aware of their of, of their books and their writing so really the yeah the influence came from elsewhere definitely it's interesting about the kind of the the, the american influence and then sort of and also and also the uk scene um i i also i also wanted to ask you um uh, eric brown died earlier this year yes i kind of lost eric brown uh you you kind of I I think you you knew him relatively well or or not? I did. Well, I I knew him. I knew him. I've only really met him a few times. 
uh, mainly because he was good friends with another writer, Michael Cobley. Mm -hmm. And I shared a flat with Michael Cobley for a good few years back in the 90s. And at one point, I think it was in 1995, Worldcon, um, Keith Brook and Eric Byrne crashed on our floor, if I recall, uh, because we were, our flat was just a couple of uh, a mile or so from the uh, where the convention was being held. But I knew him, yeah, to to say hi to at conventions, but I wouldn't say I knew him incredibly well. But yeah, and he was certainly somebody I knew of, and also I knew of him mainly, and especially through the stuff he wrote in uh, Interzone, you know. Because I remember that first story of his crash bang, crash bang Joe, and. Uh, that was, and then he had like a, a, a this tsunami of stories appearing in the magazine after that. Yeah, a, a relentless writer, you know, someone who just really produced material relentlessly. So it's, it's a real loss. A real loss, and um, and it, it, it seems also seems to be one of those writers who, when you talk to other writers about him, people who knew him, was just incredibly generous with his time. Yeah. Uh, and also a writer who probably didn't get, I think Una McCormack used the phrase sort of criminally underrated. And then sort of, it, it kind of comes back to that, that whole question of, you know, marketing and, you know, getting, being able to keep on writing the stories. But yeah, it's, it's a, yeah, yeah, a, a real, a real loss for the, for the British scene and for the scene generally. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think maybe um, partly, I wonder if maybe one reason his success didn't quite break through into the mainstream was um, he wasn't really particularly writing to market in the sense that he was writing in a particularly humanist style of SF mm -hmm. that one might particularly associate with the 1970s. Um, I think I do recall geeking out basically with him over one particular novel we both really, really liked when we were young. Over, I haven't read it since it was again since I was a teenager. A book called uh, "Hello Summer Goodbye" by Michael Coney, and it was a big influence on him. And uh, it really, it's a book that really resonated with me when I read it too a long, long time ago. So, uh, I, but knowing that book was an influence on him explains a lot of Eric Brown's writing to me because it similarly has or had that strong humanist element to it. Um, and I, I, I think that's, I don't know why, but in some way that maybe held him back somehow from entering the mainstream. But at the same time, I mean, he was also expanding, I gather, into writing um, crime novels. And uh, it's a shame because maybe, you know, if, if things hadn't worked out the way they had, he could have expanded there and broken through a bit more, perhaps. But no, absolutely. I think I think he's a writer who may get reassessed mm -hmm. in, in, in the future, maybe not too far from now. I mean, not too recently. I know that I saw a fan group for his books uh, pop up on Facebook. Oh, okay. And I thought, well, maybe that, yeah. And I thought, okay, well, maybe that's a good sign. So like... Um, it, it could be that people will finally come across his stuff and maybe that readership, you know, has a chance to expand yet. Yeah. No, I think you really got that, that, that humanist, that, that, that kind of thread running through it is definitely, is definitely what I've 
like I, I've been going back to some of the the stories and I've picked up a few of the a few of the books secondhand. Um, and that that is that is there's something about there's something about that running through it and also just an incredible talent for world building and for for establishing worlds really quickly and just stories particularly with the short stories but just short stories that just just read beautifully just you know a, re a real sort of understated sort of elegance to the writing um yeah i, I hope i hope there is a yeah a, a revival it's good to know there's a fan group yeah 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 i was really pleased to see that was there um moving on to um moving on to uh europa deep uh what is what is the book about for you this, this is your latest book yeah how, how would you describe it what is it sort of what is this book exploring you know that thing where you're too close to something you don't even know how to describe it <laughs> i'm very bad at describing my own books i'm really terrible about it uh there's a person who goes to this place uh uh stuff happens <laughs> Uh, it's kind of, that's how I talk about my books. Um, but okay. It's about, it's about a woman who is an opt, which means she's been genetically optimized before her birth. The idea being that maybe in the future, there might be a trend legally or otherwise to genetically optimize your children, you know, to, for greater success. Um, which I can, to be frank with you, I can absolutely see happening. But she has this opt thing whereby she's optimized in certain ways, but she's particularly optimized in the sense that she's been given this drive to go into space. And she does, but then it turns out there's something wrong with the, uh, the changes made to her, her genetics and to tens of thousands of others, and she can't anymore. It's too dangerous. They, people will they'll black out under conditions of zero gravity and so forth. But the basics, the actual story is about her brother was part of an expedition that went to Europa. And what's interesting about Europa, the second moon out from Jupiter, is that it's believed, or strongly believed, that under its ice may be an ocean, a liquid water ocean, tens of kilometers deep. And because of the radiation from Jupiter, and also because of the interaction of Jupiter's magnetic field with uh, magnetosphere with um, the, the, the salt water, what's believed to be a salt water ocean, and also with the metals of the core of that moon, that generates heat. So they think it's warm enough under the ice to potentially allow for life. So in a novel, they already know this life under their microbial life. Uh, they've already brought samples back. A manned expedition goes there, goes beneath the ice, and disappears. So the protagonist, Cassie White, has a chance to go on a second expedition to Europa and find out what happened to the first expedition and why they disappeared. And that's basically more or less the story. So there's other things in there as well. There is what may or may not be a stowaway on board. Um, that's a big thread of the book. Uh, there is someone who may be out to kill them all on board. This is another thread of the book. And it's how all this ties together. And when they arrive, they find a heavily armed ship belonging to another nation already in orbit and basically creating a blockade. So 
there are all these elements that tie together. So it, it's a hard SF story. It's also kind of like a you know a story about science fiction biology. There's a spy element to it. There are there's a thread in there about artificial intelligence. And uh, also maybe a theme about people kind of um, trying to survive oppression as well, because mm. people like Cassie being optimized are now regarded as in various ways, maybe dangerous. And it's all about disinformation, which we're already familiar with, leading to oppression. Uh, and that's one of the main themes running through the book as well. So I don't know how good a job I'm doing of describing it here. There's a lot there and you have all the elements you want for, you know, a, a book about a voyage to find a a missing ship. It, it has all the ingredients. And, and and I'm particularly kind of interested in in the, the I mean, it, it does that, it does a hard SF thing of, uh, of being both, you know, a very personal story about people kind of, you know, you know, cramped up on a ship, but also, you know, spanning, having a very, very sort of broad scope without, without giving too much away. And, and I think that's, that's, that's really, really, really cool. Um, it's also, I mean, it's, it's, it's about exploration. And, uh, at one point, uh, Cassie is remembering an emergency and they had that they'd experienced. And she says it was a useful reminder that the sea could kill you just as fast as space and with equal certainty. And there's that sort of, you know, it's the dangers of, you know, of exploration as well. Um, when, when did you, yeah, when did you start thinking about, you know, those two things together, the dangers of the deep and the dangers of space? And, you know, how did that become the seed of the book? I'm not sure if I was consciously thinking about that so much as that Europa seemed like an interesting thing to write about because it's the one place in the solar system where they really think there's at least the potential to discover life. And also it's because the the book that's out is was preceded by two um, drafts which bear little to no resemblance to each other. I mean, originally the early version of Europa Deep was a completely different book. It was supposed to be kind of a cosmic horror novel. Okay. Um, because... I liked the idea of the absolute unknown of some vast bottomless ocean mm. under kilometers of ice right on our, you know, our doorstep, as it were, in our solar system. And who knows what's under there? So uh, that didn't work for me. Well, but, um, I, and I knew about 60,000 words and it just wasn't working. So I stopped. I tried a second draft, which was closer to what I have now, but for various reasons that also didn't work. And eventually I came up with this version and finally finished it earlier this year. So it took me something like, I can hardly believe it, three years to write this book, which is the longest I've ever taken to write a book. So it's hard to say there was any one specific thing like, you know, the, the sea versus space kind of thing. It's more, maybe it's also that, to be honest, I just kind of like movies about and stories about people in confined, difficult frigid conditions I uh, think uh, which can often involve the sea or, or some element of cold you've got movies like The Thing uh, you've got uh, novels like The Terror by Dan Simmons um, I like stories about people in difficult 
highly technological spaces like a spacecraft dealing with extreme um, environments, which the surface and under the surface of Europa certainly is. And those kind of stories draw me in. So it seemed like an opportunity to write a story about that myself. I've also kind of noticed over the years, I seem to like writing stories about stuff that's basically sunken or hidden. And okay, like in Stealing Light, my third novel, it's all about some people who find an alien ship under ice, uh, which is not what happens in Europa Deep. But there's still an element of something hidden, drowned, deep. And something about these things appeal to me on some fundamental level. I've wondered sometimes maybe it's because one thing that really influenced me, and I've talked about it before in various podcasts, I think, is the late 1960s Hammer movie of Quatermass and the Pits. Okay. Which, again, is about people digging up something very old and very alien. So when I start writing, if I, if I write a story I really want to write, it often seems to involve people going down into the sea or the ground to find something old and alien. So that's some weird, bizarre insight into my particular psychology of whatever it is makes me want to write stories. I don't know where it comes from or why, except maybe it's that movie I saw when I was a kid for the first time and it stuck with me. But yeah, um, I, I think I just like stories about people in extreme, confined circumstances and in environments that can kill them very quickly, uh, wherever I'm reading them or watching them or writing them. So maybe it's not so much about the contrast between sea and space. Maybe it's more about them just being equally really dangerous and the conflicts that that can provide to you as a writer. So sure, I mean, on one level you've got in this story, the ocean in um, Europa is deep enough as is the ocean at the beginning of the book, that basically if something goes wrong with your diving suit, you're dead immediately. You're just crushed to toothpaste. Mm -hmm. In space, in Jupiter's environment, particularly the the, the radiation is so massively dangerous. It will literally cook you in minutes. Um, So yeah, I think it's just that the idea of a story in a place like that, which can kill you in really different but really extreme ways very fast just seems like kind of a fun place to set a story yeah no no that sounds that sounds like a lot of fun um it, it also sounds like a like a lot of research potentially I, I, are you oh my god the research oh it killed me the research i was bleeding out of my eyeballs from the research <laughs> i thought i was okay with research i was wrong but the thing is, it's not so much the research that worried me, it's the potential to get it wrong, you know? Right. If there's one thing that strikes fear into my heart, it's being reviewed by an actual physicist. But so far, I've been lucky. I noted, actually, I think the reviewer for Interzone is herself a, 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 a physicist. Yeah. I was like, a physicist, I'm doomed. Oh, no, she likes her book. It's okay. I'm okay. I survived. No, she she did. Gemma Church did. Um, you, you can read that review on Internet Digital. Um, yeah, the kind of the, f- the fear of getting the science wrong. But w- w- was it a case of, was it a case of doing a lot of research before you started? Or were you 
were you writing and then filling gaps as you went? How 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 did you approach it? Because there must have been there were so many different technologies involved in the story, and um, yeah, it, it must have been a lot to kind of keep you know to sort of basically going kind to of keep a hold on. Well, I use Scrivener to write usually use it to write novels, and that program writing program is really good for keeping copious notes and arranging them on the screen. So I was basically reading various books and reading various articles and uh, basically copying bits and sticking them up in little notepad things around my my screen so I could refer to them as I went. And I do a little pre-planning in the sense that I I basically have a work diary. And it's actually called that on my computer, work diary. I write up bits and pieces of information and I try and figure, okay, how am I going to slot this into the story? How can this contribute to the story? Does it contribute to the story? Is this something I need to know? Is this something that if I leave it out, the story won't make sense? Um, it, it's all these various considerations that, that come into play. But, you know, I, I, I still probably don't know that much about OSIN technology, but I learned what I needed to as far as I was able to understand it in, in, in order to try and get these things right in a novel. And I'm very driven by the fear of people going, oh my God, you've got this completely wrong. So I, I'm thinking, like, don't make that mistake. Don't make that mistake. So I have to get it right. So I'm always thinking, like, is this definitely right? And sometimes I think, maybe I'll just Google it again in case I've got it wrong and somebody says something completely different about it. So, you know, some of them, there's some, some of the things in there are more out there. I would actually say the most genuinely science fictional thing in the whole novel is the behemoth suits. They are the suits that they can use to do things like walk around on the bottom of the Mariani Trench. Realistically speaking, maybe they'll manage that in 100 years, but I would be surprised if they actually did because the pressures are insane. Mm-hmm. It, it, you know, I, but, you know a, a suit would require joints and to allow motion. Right. And these are all kinds of weak points at that kind of depth because it's literally like walking around with a skyscraper on your head. I mean, like, it is not to be underestimated. It's a lot of pressure, yeah. It's a, it's a lot of pressure. Absolutely insane. But it, I, I think it's fascinating that you can get that kind of level of pressure at the bottom of, say, the Mariani Trench, and you can maybe also get it in the oceans of Europa depending on how deep that ocean turns out to be, assuming the ocean is in fact there, but at a much greater depth because Europa, being a small moon, has a much lower gravity. Hmm. So you have to balance all these things out and think, okay, what's it actually going to be like down there? Yeah. So yeah, yeah, there was a lot of work to put into it and it just about killed me doing it. So the next time I do a really major book, it's going to hopefully require less research. I'll just make a lot more stuff up. Set it set it way further in the future. <laughs> way, way, way in the future. Um the the um the whole thing with the the whole thing with kind of the character who is whose consciousness is essentially uploaded, right? Yeah. That's a really that's a really interesting sort of thread. Uh I I, I like where you go with that and i and i think it's it, it, it yeah it it's i mean we we've had we've had you know 
computers on spaceships and we've had people on spaceships, but it makes sense to, to, to do this as well. Um, how, yeah. How did you go about kind of, you know, integrating that and then the research for that as well? I mean, I'm sure there's loads and loads of information about the potential for this, but yeah, that seems like a particularly intriguing piece of science. Well, I actually had to do less research than that because, you know, it's still a lot of it's very speculative. And that's why there are conversations between one character, human character, and that other uploaded character about as to whether or not they are in fact actually alive and not just an emulation claiming and possibly believing itself to be alive. And I don't actually answer that question. And that's for a reason, which is I don't know the answer. So um, I've, I've there was another thread to that character. I'd actually read a tweet by someone who was talking about the difficulties of the modern space industry and uh, that it can take up to 10,000 people, essentially, working around the clock to keep something like the International Space Station in orbit. And I thought, that's fascinating. Hmm. And uh, so I thought, and it, it niggled at me for a while and I was thinking about it. And uh, so I thought, well, how do you keep a spaceship together in like 100 years or 200 years? And then I came back around to that very, no quite old science fiction idea of, um, you know, the AI-driven spaceship. Mm -hmm. Hal is an obvious example, but you've also got the minds and the culture novels as well. And it got me to thinking that, you know, apart from it just being a playful, fun idea, maybe there was actually a practical element to the idea of a spaceship that's also kind of sentient. You could get, if you could have a technology that advanced, it would be able to do the jobs of those 10,000 people without having to have 10,000 people along Mm. to do the job. I thought, that's interesting. So in a weird kind of way, I was sort of thinking of Europa Deep as being almost... I'm not saying this is what it actually is. It could be, theoretically, a prequel to books about how you would actually end up with the universe with ships like the mines or or ships that are, you know, uh, controlled by artificial intelligences that maybe think of the ships as their body. So I I was kind of playing with that idea. And at one point, I think that character does make that argument that, you know, if you just let me, if, if someone like, they, they, it, someone like them would be perfectly suited to just basically do a lot of stuff that ordinary people, especially non-optimized people, uh, uh, um, would find very difficult to do. So I try and emphasize the fact that when they're on this journey out to Jupiter, they have to constantly fix a spaceship. They have to constantly be carrying out maintenance so they don't just die when something goes wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, having to constantly keep it. Yeah, I mean that that makes a lot of sense. Seeing that as a sort of a sort of a, a, an intermediate step between where we are and some of these other books. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Yeah, I mean, and yeah, it's like it's something I was worth exploring. It's 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 like a lot of books. I think for a lot of writers, it's just that a bunch of different threads just gradually come together in your head, and then you try and figure out some kind of a story for it. But I've been relieved to just get the book done. At last, after all the time that went into it, one other thing about it from a publishing side is it's the first time I've really seriously decided to do a book, a full novel on my own, you know, um, without having gone to publishers at all. Because I knew that if I did, it would just be years of stuff going on. 
So yeah, I just didn't have the patience for it. But it's been out for about two weeks now. It seems to have been received pretty well. And so far, so far, I'm pleased about how it's doing. You didn't go, you didn't kind of involve publishers at all with this one. Uh, what, what what happened with Proxy and with Echogenesis? Was that, did, did, were publishers involved with those at all? Well, in the sense that they were sent out to publishers by my agent to absolutely uh-huh. no response whatsoever. So Echogenesis went to everyone and got either turned down or ignored by everyone. So I spoke to my agent about it. He said, well, everyone's looked at it. And I said, fine, I'll do it myself. And I had it, I had it out, I think, within a couple of months. I was looking for a cover artist within hours of that conversation and thinking, let's see how it goes. And uh, as I say, you know, it was has genuinely been one of the most successful books of my career. Uh, even the books that did quite well in the past have like a couple of hundred reviews each. The last time I looked, Echogenesis on Amazon UK anyway has something like two and a half thousand ratings and, you know, dozens if not hundreds of reviews. And it saved my skin. It stayed in a lot of those Amazon charts for a long time. It, it did get, it did actually get a deal in the sense that I got offered a pretty decent audiobook deal by an audio publisher for the audiobook. And so that was very nice. Um, I'm glad I did it because I had uh, some issues with my, with my flat I own back in the UK, uh, but it needed repairs done pretty urgently. And, uh, I would have been, I would have had to take out some scary loan or something if it wasn't for Echogenesis doing so well. It really saved my skin on a purely practical basis. So again, another reason I'm glad I did it myself, but it did so well that I mean, it made me think, well, this is amazing. The powers, I've got the power to do this literally on my own, essentially. And I thought, if you can, you know, if you can find their readers, they will come. Um, so Proxy was also a book that went out to publishers, but not for nearly as long as Echogenesis. And I suspected it had less chance of selling because it's quite different from the other stuff I do. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, I might as well do it myself and I'll see how it goes. It didn't do as well as Echogenesis, but it got great reviews, not because it wasn't a good book, but because it was a kind of a story niche that maybe didn't appeal to so many readers. Um, it, it, in a sense that it's, it's a book that would be hard to market. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm very glad I wrote it. I still think it's one of the best things I've written. And it does when people do find it, they really like it. But I thought, okay, so I was focusing more on more traditional hard SF, you rope it deep. And I will primarily be focusing on more hard SF in the future, but you can't just keep writing the same thing all the time. You have to do something else from time to time. I've also got a couple of novellas going out to a couple of publishers, the very few who do novellas. They are, to put it mildly, very different Uh from what I usually do. And uh, if they don't sell, which is quite possible, I'll have to see. Then again, I may publish them, you know, as a kind of a collection of a 
novellas and stories and see how that goes. But again, I'm happy with them because they're different, because you need to stretch yourself and write stories without knowing if they have an audience or not, because they just feel like something you really want to write. So I'm hoping somebody out there might take a chance on them, or I may approach um, some UK small presses about them because maybe that will be a better way for them to find an audience. So I'm not writing them for commercial reasons. I'm writing them essentially for personal reasons. But I also write novellas because they're a lot quicker to write than novels. Even though they are just about the same length that many novels used to be when you go back a few decades. So it gives me the same satisfaction I would get from writing a novel, which is maybe like, say, 90,000 words. Uh, uh, Sorry, I think I'm getting myself confused here. So if I get the same satisfaction writing a novella that's, say, between 30 and 40,000 words, but I would writing a novel that was 90 to 100,000 words. So, um, yeah, it's it's a way to tell more stories. But I, I don't worry, I'm not thinking of them as being commercial propositions. I'm thinking of them as just stories I want to tell and hope somebody likes them. Uh, obviously, obviously, I want people to read Europa Deep as well, but I am thinking slightly more commercially in terms of a, a particular audience with them because it seems like, you know, I still want to find a story I really want to tell, which is why it took three drafts to write Europa Deep. But um, I was still thinking in the back of my mind somewhere, well, aim for an audience. And, and I think you, you kind of hope there's a balance between, you know, the readers who, who you know, there are going to be some readers who don't follow you to books like Ghost Frequencies or to, yeah. or to um, Devil's Road. Yeah. Shout out to those two, which are great. Oh, yeah. um, and then there are, there are those readers who are, I think, going to go, I, I like how this writer writes and I want to see what else they write, regardless of what it is. I, I think there is, I, I think there's a balance there, right? I think there is, but it's also that when I write novellas, I think they're fairly quirky books. Um, so hopefully they're attractive to people who like quirky books. Um, the other two novellas I've written are definitely what you would call quirky. Uh-huh. So I'm hoping that they may or may not, you know, may on some level find an audience. So there's that as well. Uh, I mean, I tend to like odd, quirky little books. So I like to think I'm contributing to the general pool of odd, quirky little books by writing these novellas. There are not enough odd, quirky little books. Yeah, more, more. <laughs> we need more of those for sure. And 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 um, what about what about the kind of the the sort of the the, the more the, the the bigger the sort of what you call I guess the more mainstream books? Do, what's next? What's sort of next on your on your um? work schedule <laughs> well i always said that i had no interest in writing a sequel to echogenesis and very annoyingly an idea for a sequel to echogenesis came into my head and i thought oh shit now i have to write it okay so i've been i planned out a sequel the working title is aranyani which is a name they give the planet in the first book so that may be that i'm, I'm aiming for possibly another two books set in that universe. I'm not sure yet because it's still early. I've done a little writing on the actual story, but not much, just a few thousand words, just trying to find my way into the characters again. So that may be my next main project. Uh, Moving beyond that, 
and the novellas. I've got a notion, I mean, it's early days, so, you know, this may not turn out at all. I've got a notion to, in fact, write a really kind of far future, um, big spaceships and galactic type civilizations space opera. There's a particular kind of idea that's been rolling through my head for, I think, on and off for a few years now. And it's like when ideas come to you, sometimes it's just an occasional image or a notion rather than a full-blown idea. Mm -hmm. But I have some written details of how this civilization would work in the sense of what its underlying economy Mm. essentially would be. And that would play a big part of the story. And it's also that um, I was thinking about the Ian Banks novels in the sense that I wanted to basically do something sort of like Banks, but also as unlike Banks as possible. Hmm. I thought, I thought, I want to see what could go really, really, really wrong in a setting like that. <laughs> and I thought, but, you know, if the, the thing is, I really rated the Banks SF novels when I was younger, but I start, I find myself thinking now that, you see, when you write a novel on some level, the characters and the ideas are the expressions of the writer's own ideas and personality. That's natural. So to a great extent, the characters and the ideas in the culture novels are expressions of Ian Banks's personality and beliefs. But what if someone looked at some kind of a far future society with interstellar travel, with next level circumstances uh, 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 of technology. Uh, what if somebody looked at that from a different, maybe even a more pessimistic point of view? So, you see, I thought to myself, I don't think it would really be like that. You see, the thing that makes the culture novels work is that they aren't human. You know, that's the whole point about them. If they were human, it would be, it would be just carnage. <laughs> and I thought, well, maybe then great. Let's write the story about the carnage. Let's write the story about the things that go really horribly wrong all the time. Okay. And I thought, there's something to go with there. And also the whole idea of intelligent spaceship says they're intelligent. They have their own minds about what they want to do. Maybe not things we would ever want them to do. So if you actually had a situation where you actually had some kind of technology like that, what could go wrong? And I thought, well, actually... Lots of things could go wrong. Lots of things could go really, really wrong. And I thought, that would be fun. So these are the ideas rolling around in my head just now. So drawing a little bit on the, the, the legacy of the Banks books, but also drawing on other books as well, like, um, you know, Werner Vinge's, um A Fire Upon the Deep and other novels, which are big mainstays of those kinds of story. Um, I just want to see where I can go with that. I've done stories a little like that with Stealing Light, but I've never done a proper, full-blown, pre-existing galactic civilization of humans story. And I think, see, what's important to me is to try and do something that's not quite like anyone else has done. I don't, I can't say for certain that I'm being original because 
sometimes I find that what I thought was a really smart original idea has been done like a dozen times before. But as long as I think it's my own idea, that's kind of what matters because then I can put all my energy and my enthusiasm into it. So with, I mean, Europa Deep, the whole story is about questioning the assumption of why do we assume that interstellar space travel would be basically about human bodies and tin cans flying through space? Maybe the universe has its own solutions to that. And again, without trying really hard not to give anything away, some of the stories about that. So again, I would look at this kind of classic SF galactic civilization setup and think, what can I do here that maybe, maybe hasn't been done before? Because that's what makes me interested. That's what gives me the impetus and the desire to write that story and explore that setting. And uh, so when I can hook properly into that thing that makes it distinct, that gets me into the story and then I can write it. Sounds, yeah, looking forward to it. Sounds really intriguing. Well, I mean, it's a few years away before it happens, but hopefully I'll get there. Um, to, to just to wrap up, um, do you have? I mean, what what have you been enjoying recently yourself? What you know, I, I know you do. A, you listen to a lot of audiobooks. I do. Um, what what's what's sort of yeah? What's been on your radar that you might want to recommend? Oh, good grief, that's hard. Um, I'm reading a novel just now uh, called uh, The Watchers. I actually read quite a bit of horror. Mm-hmm. Um, I find horrors a very interesting field at the moment and has been for some years it it feels like it's going through a period of strong invention and creativity so yeah the watchers by am shine is an excellent little novel but i just finished um curiously a book i'm reading just now almost reads like some kind of weird dystopian brazil style science fiction but it's not it's totally it's non-fiction and it's about tax evasion oh I swear to God, one of the most entertaining <laughs> books I've read in a couple of years is a book about tax evasion by a guy who writes under the, under the pseudonym The Rebel Accountant. It's called Taxtopia. And I actually, I've actually thought for a while now that if you really want to write good SF or even good stories, having some understanding of economics and business can actually go a long way towards it because it allows you to create robust and believable worlds right? where people do the things they do for reasons that make much more sense than they might otherwise. I read a novella recently by Alma Katsu called Black Vault, which I really enjoyed. I'm not sure if it's, yeah, I think it's maybe an Audible exclusive and uh, that's kind of a slightly X-Files kind of thing, but that's not doing it justice to put it that way. Uh, that was great. Uh, there's a slightly underrated novel called Children of the Sun I thought was very good. That's by a writer called Beth Lewis. And I came across the book because she was tweeting about not getting any marketing from her publisher and her book not getting any reviews and not being stocked in bookshops. I mean, I read the synopsis and thought, well, that sounds interesting. And I read it. It is a fascinating novel. It's not being marketed as SF. It is very definitely SF. Okay. I would recommend that as well. Uh, I, I try and read a lot of non-SF, a lot of non-fiction, because it feeds into stories. There was a novel, a, a, not, not a novel, a non-fiction book called People Hacker, which is by a woman whose job is 
she gets hired by companies to break into their premises and test the security. Oh, I see. And uh, yeah, so and see, these are some big companies, and it's all about infiltration mm. and the art of you know people you know getting past people. It's not about using computers or technology. It's about persuading people to open the door for you they're not supposed to open. Beyond that, there was a, another interesting SF novel I read recently was Celestial by Andy Lachlan, which is this bizarre kind of lava lamp inf, um, infused novel of people secretly going to the moon in the 1970s. Uh, really, I could just keep rattling on. Uh, yeah, I, that, that's maybe a selection of stuff I've been, I've been reading recently, which I've, I thought was really good. I'm still. I'm actually basically scanning my Audible list to try and tell you what I've been reading. I don't. Oh, uh, no, not that one. Hang on. Actually, I'll tell you what. I'm going to give an an off the field recommendation. It's it's detective novels. Okay. But I think they would appeal to science fiction and fantasy readers. They're they're books by a writer called Sarah Gran, G R A N, and uh, they are about a woman detective with a very unconventional, weirdly zen kind of way of doing her job of investigating crime, which is itself influenced by a mysterious French detective named Celette, oh. who was once the world's greatest detective, but then wrote a book on how he does detection, which was derided, and then he disappeared mysteriously. <laughs> but the book the book is filled, the Sarah Grand novel is filled with these quotes um, uh, from Celette, which are just bizarre and it's like people who are people stumble across the select book in weird little nooks and it's like it was left there to tell them you were meant to be a detective it's almost this bizarre kind of edging into this weird dark fantasy kind of thing and and it becomes about this detective select to a greater and greater extent as it goes on i would highly recommend those books. Now, Sarah Grand has also uh, written some kind of dark fantasy and uh, horror. Uh, more, She's also moved into doing her own thing, self-publishing and doing her own imprint. And she recently had a novel out called The Book of the Most Precious Substance, which is about a women's search, a, a book dealer's search for, as it says here on the screen, a mysterious book that promises unlimited power and unrivaled sexual pleasure <laughs> okay. so it's a lot of fun <laughs> that sounds like a huge amount of fun wow okay thank you that, that, that that's a great set of recommendations um that thank you very much uh gary gibson uh listeners uh, europa deep is is out now in all the places you normally buy books um i think there's an audiobook on the way or do i need to cut that bit out for europa deep if it keeps doing well, that's possible. I'll just gonna kind of have to see how it does and whether I can then put the expense into it. In fact, if I ever do do Kickstarter, it's probably going to be to finance audiobooks more than anything else. That's an interesting. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting use case for sure. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. Well, uh, thank you very much. Have a have a great day, Gary. And um, yeah, uh, I'll I'll talk to you again soon. Thank you, Gary. And uh, thanks for inviting me onto the podcast. You've been listening to Interzone Pod with me, Gareth Jelly, and my guest today, Gary Gibson. Find out more about Interzone and how to subscribe at interzone.press and read stories, reviews, and interviews for free 
at interzone.digital. Thanks for listening. See you next time.